So once upon a time, a perfect man and a perfect woman met. And after a perfect courtship, they had a perfect wedding, and their life was, of course, perfect. And one snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, this perfect couple was driving their perfect car, an SUV, along a winding road when they noticed someone at the side of the road in distress. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. And there stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. And not wanting to disappoint any children on the eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their vehicle. Soon they were driving along, delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated, and the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an accident. Only one of them survived the accident. Who was the survivor? Well, the perfect woman survived. She's the only one who really existed in the, per- in the first place. <laughs> and if there is no perfect man and no Santa Claus, then the perfect woman must have been driving, and this explains why there was an accident. I couldn't pass that one up this week, saw that. (laughs) All right, well, so far this Advent season, we have talked about two very important words. They're the words hope and peace. And what I've said to you is that Jesus Christ is hope and Jesus Christ is, is peace. And so these two vital emotions, aspirations, I'm not sure exactly what to call them, hope and peace, they, they are fully found in a trusting, worshiping, anticipating relationship with Jesus Christ. You can look around the whole world for hope, but all things will disappoint you until you arrive at Christ. You can seek rest and peace, but until you come to Christ, your heart will not know peace. And there's lots of talk about hope around Christmas, lots of talk about peace, but apart from Jesus Christ, the world has neither. Your life has neither. Jesus is hope, Jesus is peace, the Prince of Peace, the Bible calls it. And I'd like to add one more color to the Advent spectrum this morning, and I'd like us to get there by way of a question. This is a rhetorical question, no need to answer this out loud, but if I were to ask you to write down the five or ten things that bring you the most pleasure in life, what would you write down? What things please you? Be honest. There's no need to feel super spiritually, super spiritual here. Nobody's looking at your list. Just, just be honest. What brings you the most pleasure? When you look back at a day and say, man, that was a great day, what's led you to say that? If you look back on the year and say, man, 2015, this was a great year, what's leading you to say that? What brings you pleasure? Not everything that brings me pleasure is super spiritual. My list isn't all pastor stuff. I mean, take this time of year, for instance. I I love Christmas. Christmas is pleasurable. The kids are out of school. People are being generous. There's all kinds of good food laying around. The house and the church are all decorated and looking sparkly and nice, and, and you're doubling down on time with family, and you have more people in your home. This is just good stuff, good, good stuff. What makes your list? Maybe it's not Christmas. Maybe this time of year is hard and lonely and, and depressing. Maybe it's other things. Maybe it's a vacation or closing a deal or, or an A on a report card or a really fine meal. I don't know what's on your list, but there's things on your list. 
And so here's what I want us to see this morning. All this Advent stuff that we've been talking about, hope and peace and the baby in a manger, all this we've been considering is profoundly connected to God's pleasure. It's connected to pleasure in the heart of God. And when you begin to understand that truth, I think it can utterly change the way you experience Christmas. Again, I'd like for you to turn back to the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter this time. We were in Isaiah 59 a couple of weeks ago. We went to Luke chapter 2 last week. Now this week, this week we're back to Isaiah. And if you know Isaiah 53, you know this is a chapter about the suffering Messiah. Some might say this is a chapter best reserved for Good Friday and not the Sunday before Christmas, and that might be right. But this is one of those chapters, I think, that sort of says it all. And within saying it all, there is one verse that gives a profound depth to the gospel. And it's a verse that you might skip over or a verse you might fly past as you are reading all these weighty prophecies about the suffering servant. All these prophecies, all this stuff about the Messiah being despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, not esteemed but afflicted, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the one who poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He, he, He bore the sins of many. All of that language in Isaiah 53. And you read all those descriptions, descriptions written 700 years before the birth of Christ, and then you come to verse 10. And in verse 10, amidst all the atonement language and the sacrificial language and all the brutal language of suffering and death on a cross, that there was one of the most radical phrases in all of Scripture. Let's read verse 10 of Isaiah 53 together. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the prophet writes, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This is God's word this morning. This is one of those verses that is so expansive, I think we could be here till Tuesday evening discussing it. Don't worry, we won't be, but we could be. And you probably also noticed that I didn't read from the ESV this morning. I've grown to really love the English Standard Version, and I predominantly preach from it. But with this verse, I think the ESV translators missed something the other English translators capture. And it's an exchange of a word. The ESV uh, exchanged the word pleasure for will. I think it's really important that we lock in with that word pleasure. Not because it just suits my purposes this morning, but I think it captures what's being said in this passage. But I want you to think about this for a moment. I think you really have to stretch your mind and open your heart to what's being said in this verse. I think we've, been so, we've grown so accustomed to, to biblical language that a verse like this can just become common. But if you use your imagination, if you really think this verse should challenge you, And here's what I'm getting at. Here's what I'm driving toward in all of this introduction. How could it be that God the Father would ever find pleasure in crushing his son? That's the primary question I want to answer this morning. How could it be that God the Father would find pleasure in crushing 
his son? It's a huge question. If you're a parent in the room, just think for a moment. Think, think of the heart that you have for your kids. You love your children. You, you fear for your children. You hurt for your children. You do everything you can to protect your children from danger. You know, you're repeating the warnings over and over and over again. Careful, be careful, watch your step, be careful, don't run, look out, slow down, careful now. You, know, I mean, you say these things almost endlessly throughout the day. So often your kids don't even hear you anymore, by the way. And you do that because you love them. And in your love for them, you want to preserve them, protect them from danger. So, so you pray. You pray that they don't get sick. You, you hope that they don't have a difficult time. Your very real desire is that God would give them success and happiness and joy and everything they want in life. You, you would never want anything like what is being described in Isaiah 53 to happen to one of your children. You just wouldn't. That's the heart of a parent. And with that with that heart, you have to look at verse 10 and say, what on earth, what on earth could be so powerful, so motivating to the heart of God that he would be willing, even find pleasure in subjecting his son to suffering, chastisement, abandonment, torture, and crushing death? What could be in the heart of God that would compel him to do that? And the simple answer is this, and you really need to hear what I'm about to say, because if you get this, it's going to change everything about you. What it could be that God would allow to take, or excuse, excuse me, would allow God to take pleasure in the crushing of his son. What it is, the answer is love. Magnificent, faithful, joyous, sacrificial love. And you say, well, well, Jay, how do you know that? Let's move through the three verses that are there in your notes, and we'll maybe uncover why. Let's start with the, with the big E on the eye chart there, John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God so Love. God so loved. You see that? He so loved that he would do this radical thing with his son. He would give his son. God looked at the way sin would wreck the world. He looked at us. He looked at you and me. People just utterly broken inside. People separated from him. People at odds with him because of our sin. So the thing that we were created for, which was to be in relationship with God, that had been shattered, and God was so full of love that he could not allow things to stay in that broken, unreconciled condition, so he acted. John 3.16 says his action was supremely an act of love. And never forget, never forget, God didn't wait on us so that then he could be loving. He wasn't waiting on us to cross the dance floor and ask him if he was willing to love us. No, he if he was waiting on us, he'd still be waiting. Sin rendered us unable to save ourselves, unable to even seek God ourselves, completely unable to escape the guilt that we're all under. And so God moved on our behalf, not that we loved God, but that what? That he loved us. God so loved the world that he gave. And when the son was given, he was given fully, and he was given sacrificially, and he was given powerfully, and he was given unfailingly. So no, God doesn't find pleasure in those particular moments that involved the suffering of his son. He's not a cosmic sadist, as C.S. Lewis once accused him of being. He didn't enjoy the crushing blows delivered to the son, but he did find pleasure. He continues to find pleasure in the result of the son's suffering. 
being outside of time, God could look through the brutal treatment of his son on the cross and see many more sons of glory, believers in Christ, millions upon millions of them who would be reconciled to God the Father because the life and the death of his son, Jesus. The Christmas story. The Christmas story, when followed to its needed conclusion, is not, is not so much, oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It's not so much all is calm, all is bright. No, it is a story of magnificent, otherworldly love. Love that endures great violence but results in lasting peace. And this love, this love we could never earn or achieve or deserve. This is love we couldn't have dreamt up on our own. It is love offered as a gracious gift to unworthy recipients. God loved us so much, so much, that he would be willing to subject his son to unthinkable things. Why? Because that death would bring you life. And so hear this now. Let this hit you in a very personal way this morning. God's love for you sent Christ to earth to be born in a manger. God's love for you drove Jesus to the cross to die a brutal and horrific death. God's love for you rolled away the stone from the empty tomb. And God's love for you continues to provide for your every need. Which brings us to that next verse in your notes. And before I read that verse, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, okay, Jay, I understand this. I've heard this before. You know, God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. I get this. Why the emphasis? Why do you keep restating it sort of all these different ways? So here's why. Here's why. Maybe sometime in the next week, maybe sometime in the next month or in the next year, you will, in some circumstance or some location or in some relationship, you will be tempted to doubt the love of God for you. Maybe it will be a moment of physical suffering. Maybe it will take the form of a relational disappointment. Somebody's going to hurt you or turn their back on you. Maybe it'll be a moment of financial desperation where it's just not looking like you're going to have what it is you need. Or maybe it's all of those things at once and none of it makes sense. Or maybe you'll just look around the world that we live in where, where evil appears to be prospering, where the whole planet is just about to come apart and you wonder, where is God? Where is all this love? And when your mind starts to go there, when your mind goes there and your heart starts to follow, this is your argument. This is your your assurance that not only did sending Christ display the greatness of God's love for you, but it confirms that he will continue in his love for you. Romans 8.32, hear these words. He who did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things. What's Paul's logic? If God would do this radical thing to offer his son to be brutally beaten and killed, that it would please God to crush him. Crushing has to do with his physical suffering. Grief has to do with his emotional suffering. If God would subject Christ, willingly give Christ in that way for you, will he not also give you everything that you need? It would make no sense for God to do this radical thing for you and then for him just to sort of turn his back on you. That would make no redemptive logic whatsoever. 
And so Paul argues that your guarantee that God will be faithful to you, that he will be with you and in you and for you, your guarantee is Jesus Christ, ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ. I love the way Tim Keller vividly puts this. He says, God looks at the anxious. Ever been anxious? God looks at the anxious and says, I tore my son to shreds for you, and you're afraid I will not give you what you need? You do not have to be afraid. You don't have to play out all the what-ifs. You don't have to figure out the sovereignty of God and the mystery of His divine will. You know, the importance of believing in the sovereignty of God is not because that doctrine will cause all of life to make sense to you. The importance of believing in the sovereignty of God is precisely because life won't make sense to you. And in those moments when it doesn't make sense to you, when it doesn't seem like God is hearing, when he, when, he, when he seems distant and far off, when you're looking at the life of someone else and their life seems so much better and easier, and the enemy is whispering in your ear, okay, where's your God now? Amidst all of that, you have an argument to give. You can look to Isaiah 53.10 and Romans 8.32, and you can say, if God would do this for me, will he not meet all of my needs? Will he not deliver on his promises? Of course he will. And God doesn't want you just to know this, folks. He actually wants you to feel this. He wants you to experience this in a profound way. Let's look at Galatians 4. Galatians 4, see what I'm talking about here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption, full rights of Sons, and because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So, first of all, verse 4 delivers the idea that when God sent the Son, it was because the fullness of time had come. And we can only really speculate what is meant by fullness of time to confess a full understanding of what is meant by that is to claim a full understanding of God's purposes, and I would be the first to admit that I don't have an understanding of that. But I do know that way back, way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said there was one coming that would crush the head of the serpent. And it was a really long time before that one came, but when it was the right time, the perfect time, when it was God's time, he came. And as I said, I, I don't know how God orchestrated history to bring it to that very perfect point in time. I do not, not, not know all the things in God's mind, but I do know that Jesus, when he came, he was right on time. And as you trace this passage in Galatians 4, you see that not only was the Son sent at just the right time, but the Holy Spirit is sent as well. Both the Son and the Spirit are sent, both of them on mission for God. These two members of the Godhead, they have, they have a specific task to accomplish, and that task is to bring God's people into a relationship with Him that can only be characterized as a father-child relationship. These two came into the world not just to save the world, not just to get us home to heaven, but they came to give us the kind of relationship with God that Jesus has with God. Let me say that again. They came to bring us into the kind of relationship with God that Jesus has with God. Jesus is sent to make the relationship possible, that's what Galatians 4 says, to redeem and to adopt. And the Spirit is sent to make it tangible, to put a cry in our hearts. 
to move us in an emotional, affectionate way that we refer to God and relate to God in certain terms. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson, he was pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, South Carolina for many, many years. I used to visit that church when I was in Columbia taking seminary classes. And and Ferguson wrote a book called Children of the Living God, and it's a great book on this idea of sonship and adoption. And in the book, he primarily interfaces with the parable of the prodigal son. And Ferguson points out that, that in the story of the prodigal son, you all know the prodigal son story, right? Luke 15, son asks for his inheritance, he squanders it, he comes back to the father, father accepts him, father throws a party and restores his rights as a son. And Ferguson remarks that, w- that when the son comes back, He comes back with a very faulty repentance. He comes back and he says, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me work as one of your hired hands. And in effect, let me work off my debt. Let me pay you back. And Ferguson says, although the, I'll just read a long passage here. Ferguson says, although the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 is one of the best loved of the parables, the lesson it teaches us is often overlooked. Jesus was underlining the fact that the reality of the love of God for us is the last thing to dawn on us. As we fix our eyes on ourselves, our failures, our present guilt, it seems impossible that the Father should love us. So many Christians go throughout life with the prodigal's suspicion. Their concentration is on their sin and their failure All their thoughts are introspective. Like the prodigal, we have a native inability to believe that salvation is completely by grace and love. We are slow to realize the implications of this. We have the status of sons, but we have the mindset of a hired servant. Ferguson goes on to say, In the parable, we have a perfect example of exactly what every person who first comes to Christ is doing. You may say in your head that you believe you are saved by grace, but you believe, you believe that you're a child of God, but you really don't believe it. What Ferguson, what this parable in Luke 15, what this text here in Galatians 4 is pointing out is that if, we, if all we had was the Son coming to, into the world and getting us the status as children of God, that wouldn't be enough to change our lives. You see, the Spirit was sent so that we would also feel like sons, and that's what changes our lives. What Paul is talking about here in Galatians 4, 6 is something more than the objective fact of sonship. He's talking about a feeling, and I realize that's dangerous language to use with a bunch of Mennonites, you know, feelings, emotions. But but feelings, they have their vital place. And Paul is talking here about a subjective experience, a feeling that comes upon us that leads us to experience, not just know, but experience God as our Father. A feeling that is convinced that God loves me, that He cares for me, that He's always going to do what's best for me. And so convinced of God's love and care and interest in our lives... So convinced are we that we are led by the Spirit to unashamedly cry out to Him using tender, emotional, heartfelt language. The Spirit works in us in such a way that we know, we know that we can call out to the sovereign Lord over all things. We can cry out to Him, Abba, Father, because He loves us as a Father. 
That's how personal His love for us is. That's how personal the relationship that has been established, in fact, is. So the answer to the $64,000 question about God's pleasure in crushing His Son, the answer is there as you look at the, fra- at the phrase at the end of verse 10 in Isaiah 53. Because all His good pleasure, all of God's good pleasure is going to prosper in His hand. What, what's that mean? That means that men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation, 2,000 years later, sitting in a room in Enid, Oklahoma, they will be redeemed. They will be saved through the work of the Son. But more than that, they will be brought into a loving relationship with a Father, a Heavenly Father. If you look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, God says that I take no pleasure in the sacrifices. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because they didn't accomplish this. They couldn't do this. His good pleasure would not prosper in the work of that old sacrificial system, the blood of, of bulls and goats. It didn't, it didn't remove sin. It just covered it for a time. It didn't bring the sinner into relationship with God as Father. There was no love there. There is no greater demonstration of God's love for you than Him sending His Son. It pleased Him to crush Him because it so pleased Him to save you. If you believe that, if you believe that God was not bothered to save you, but pleased to save you, your entire outlook on life will change 180 degrees. What better time than at Christmas? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time together today. So much encouragement, so much blessing from the music we were able to enjoy to your word here in front of us, to just being in a room together, encouraging, loving, fellowshipping the way that we are. If there's anyone here that doesn't know you, doesn't have a real sense of your love for them. God, I pray that today through the work of this sermon, the work of these texts that we've looked at, God, that you would just draw them to yourself, that they would be at the end of themselves, and at the end of themselves that they would only look to you for hope and salvation and peace, only to your love. Lord, press these things deeply into our hearts this Christmas that we have hope because we have Jesus. We have peace because we have Jesus. We know love because you first loved us and showed us what kind of love you have by sending your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.